because I have arguments with lots of people. Yeah. I'm very prone to arguing. Like, you're the only person I don't remember having an argument with. And I'm trying to figure out, what is it that you do? Because uh-huh. there's something that you're doing differently mm-hmm. that you and I never argue. Maybe we are uh, having higher frequency communications. Maybe the diff is... Yeah, I, I've wondered. It's some yeah. combination of frequency. It's some of your style. Uh, like, every time I think when I have an argument, Jonathan, like, you were already on the same page. Mm-hmm. Like, you've anticipated the issue in a sense. Too nice a guy. Uh-huh. He's a nice guy. There are lots of nice guys. <laughs> I argue with a lot of nice guys. <laughs> you know that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I think, John, I, I mean, to your credit, I think you're actually very good at anticipating the issue. Because usually the, the source of my arguments is I think I always live in the future. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't spend enough time acknowledging success today. And I'm always looking at what's, what are we going to do tomorrow that's going to either be beneficial or hurt us mm-hmm. and and I'm usually anywhere from a few weeks to six months ahead of the issue and so most people are coming into a conversation looking for compliments and I'm always telling them hey here's what we need to do next yeah and it can be very frustrating for people because they're like shit dude I just did this x thing and all you're doing is telling me what I need to do better yeah yeah maybe that's why like the uh, the, the way I operate too is uh, to think about all the risks in the business, all the things that can go wrong, and make sure that we have a mitigation plan for this. Like whenever I speak with uh, with you, with Sumir, with others, I try to think of, okay, wh- wh- what, are, what am I missing? Like what's missing in the strategy? What's missing in the exec team? Like what are we not building? It's looking at the complement of what we're doing. And I think of our conversations as a way to make sure that I don't have any blind spots. So I'm always farming for blind spots, farming for reds, farming for what can go wrong so that there is a mitigation plan in place. I'm sure there'll always be unknown unknowns. Yeah. Uh, this this was different from, I would say, like from my first startup. In my first startup, I was much more, here is the plan. Let me go make it successful. Now it's, okay, there is the plan, but but it's, it's a lot of uh, time spent on risk reduction. Like what are the risks that we have to take out of Turing for it to be a $100 billion company this decade? And making a list of those risks and strategically sort of working through that. And if that's the frame, I feel like we are both thinking about what could go wrong and problem solving that, like versus, I mean, I'm pretty happy. I don't need compliments. <laughs> I, think I, I think it is it is that frame of reference where you're constantly trying to look at what could go wrong. And I think there is an element of that, which is my personality, which is I'm always thinking about yes. what could go wrong. And then we're talking about things that we both care about because yes. at the end of the day, we want the same goal. Correct. Like we're in it to build a $100 billion company. Correct. Uh, and the only debate is... On the path. Yes. Not on the, not on the destination. From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO, and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories about what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. Jonathan Siddharth is co-founder and CEO of Turing, a next-generation IT services company. Think reimagining Accenture or TCS using AI. Turing uses AI to source, vet, match, and manage 
the world's best software developers remotely. Jonathan started Turing in Foundation's offices four years ago, and he's grown it into a company with a $4 billion valuation. On this episode of B2B as CEO, we talk about how he did it, from best practices for hiring execs and communicating with investors, to the unique fundraising machine that Turing's built, to navigating through choppy economic waters. Jonathan is one of the most methodical, forward-thinking entrepreneurs I've ever worked with. For four wild years, he's been living the startup life and fighting the founder's fight. He embodies this show's ideal of growing from engineer to CEO. Welcome, Jonathan, to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Asha. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, it's been four years, give or take, since you really launched Turing and you started off in our offices. It's also been four years since we launched the podcast. So it's a fun time for us to sort of reflect on the journey and see how things have evolved. So tell me a little bit and tell our audience a little bit about the company and the journey. We started off as uh, EARs at your offices, Ashu. And I remember my co-founder, Vijay, and I like iterating through a couple of hypotheses when we were in the foundation offices. Yep. And I always like to say we started partnering from day minus 100. We had this hypothesis when we started that the world would shift to a more remote-first future where companies operate with more distributed teams. To me, the journey almost breaks into two distinct halves. The first half was pre-COVID and the second half was post-COVID. And I feel like the future of remote work sped forward by about five years. Yep. So tell me more about that. What was the... What was the biggest challenge pre-COVID for you and how did that change post-COVID? So when we started the company, I mean, Turing, as you know, like offers the world's most deeply vetted developers matched by AI. Yep. A big part of the Turing thesis was that for almost every tech company, it would be nice to have a way to push a button and hire engineers from all over the world, right? And before COVID, I remember speaking with investors and others where the question I would get is, wait, how can a company operate where the entire team is not sitting inside one office, right? And COVID created this sort of um, forced experiment for distributed teams, and it helped companies of all scale and sizes experience the magic of distributed teams. And the magic that comes when you can hire the best people in the world, not just the people who happen to live near your office. And post-COVID, like the shift, it, it's been just this remarkable scaling phase where Today, we have these companies like Disney, Johnson & Johnson, Coinbase, all these large companies embracing remote work. And it's, it's been exciting. I think you're so spot on. I remember in the early days, most engineering managers would say, I've never managed a remote team. I don't know if this is possible. And obviously, you know, the moment COVID hit, everyone was managing a remote engineering team and everyone figured out how. And, and what, what Turing does became the default not the exception. Uh, and I think that's been really fun to see. Uh, talk to us a little bit and to the audience really about how you've had to sort of scale the business and what's changes you've gone from being, you know, a pre-seed startup to now a billion dollar company. Yeah, I mean, the biggest change comes in the kind of uh, exec team that you hire and the kind of organization that you build. There is a, in the early days, like, we didn't really think about writing down a culture document, for example. For me, like one important step was writing down a document on 
uh, here's how we work, here's how we make decisions. And as you scale, and Turing's kind of scaled from about a few tens of people to a few hundred people in a very short period of time. Yep. And it puts an enormous strain on how you organize, what kind of uh, teams you build, what kind of leaders you hire. In the end, it comes down to recruiting the right kind of leaders for that right kind of scale and setting up the right kind of systems and processes to sort of rein in the chaos. I feel yep. like here again, there was a shift for us like where we operated in a blitzscaling phase for, the, for a couple of years. Uh, I would say up until the early part of this year, and then we switched gears to a more efficient scaling approach. And to me, I feel like the path that took us from zero to unicorn is not the path to go from unicorn to say a $10 billion company. And we've started making some of those changes to grow up in some sense. I wanna come back to the, the changes as you go from one to 10, but let's stick to the zero to one for a minute. You know, share a little bit about your experiences with hiring executives. You know, in particular, if there are examples of, you know, you hired someone for a function, they didn't work out, what the lessons you learned from that and how you, you know, made the transition to another exec. Yeah. So I feel like the most important job of a CEO is to build the right uh, exec team. I remember, Ashu, early in our seed stage journey, one of the pieces of advice you shared with, with me was, for your next level of scale, all your problems are likely going to be hiring problems, right? Like the, the things to solve. And that was so spot on. So I feel like as part of growing up, one of the biggest lessons is the importance of have, building a world-class exec team. Yep. Right? And for me, there were uh, three main things that I, that I learned as we've scaled our exec team. The first was for a CEO, most often than not, you're hiring an exec for a function that you've never sort of uh, led yourself before. For example, Absolutely. when I've had to hire a CFO, I mean, what do I know about hiring a CFO? I've not had tons of CFOs before. So it was important for me to have an expert in the interview panel who's done this multiple times, who can calibrate across multiple great CFO candidates, who knows what excellence looks like in the role. For example, for the CFO, I had uh, Jack Lazar, who's been a wonderful advisor to Foundation Capital for all sorts of uh, finance-related exec hiring. Having people like that in that interview panel is super helpful. And I try to internalize what's their mental model for evaluating an exec, what do they look for? And we try to absorb that in our process. So that's number one. And, and it's true even for other roles like engineering, like for, for example, for our head of engineering, like I'm having somebody on the panel who's hired multiple heads of engineering who's operated with engineering teams of hundreds of people. The second is the success rate for an exec in a role. I hear this often that it's 50% in the first six months, right? This off-credit yep. statistic. I think that there's a lot of truth to that. One lesson for me is to stay really close to an exec in that first three months of them being in the role. And I feel like in three months, you can tell if this exec is gonna work out or not. Yep. And be prepared to rip the bandaid off quickly if in three months, like things are not looking looking good, right? Not to say that they've ramped up to 100%, maybe they've ramped up to 75%, but it's very easy to tell within three months whether this person's gonna work out or not. Often the probabilities don't, don't change much. And the third piece for me that was interesting is that different execs have different working styles. It's been interesting getting to know all these different styles of working and the one size fits all approach like doesn't work with managing execs. Yep. Right? Like the, uh, and for me, that you was You have to adjust to them versus the other way around. Correct, correct. But there's nothing like having the right execs in the right role. Like you kind of feel like you have so much leverage. 
with the right execs, it feels like they they can go up a couple of gears and you can kind of see the next couple of years of your company going super smoothly under that person. So three lessons it sounds like. It's getting the right people in the interview process, getting experts to help you interview. It's staying closed in the first three months so that you really can assess if they're going to be a long-term leader in your company and if not, pull the Band-Aid early on. Third is just adjusting and finding a common working style as against assuming that they will adapt to your style. Correct. Tell me a little bit more about ripping the Band-Aid. So one of the hardest decisions for a founder, CEO, is to sort of evaluate an executive that's leading a function that they haven't led and having the confidence to rip the Band-Aid 30, 60, 90, or 120 days in. Firstly, it's good to ideally be in a case where you're not in this situation. And for this, again, back-channel references are so, so important. Like, I try to have at least a couple of back-channel references for every exec who joins. It's good to have a very clear 30, 60, 90-day plan for what you want the exec to accomplish in those first three months. And it's important to have really frequent touch points with the exec, like in that three-month period as they're ramping up. And it's tough to rip the Band-Aid off when things are not, not working out. Historically, I would say I've probably erred on the side of not ripping the Band-Aid off quickly enough. One big lesson that I've learned going forward is to, when things don't work out, just making the change quickly. I know the cliche is A people hire A people and B people hire C people. Uh, I think there's another version, which is uh, the B people drive away the A people. And you kind of well have said. to... And you kind of have to rip the ripping the bandaid off is it can be really key to retaining high performing members of your exec team. Very well said. Switching gears a little bit, I'd love for you to share your approach to fundraising in the early days. Because you had a very innovative approach to fundraising and managing in your investor relationships. Yeah. I mean, my lessons in fundraising, uh, Ashu, like really came from the time I was running our first startup, which was an AI-based content recommendation company. I made a lot of mistakes in my first startup. And one mistake was I operated, I would say, in a serial fashion rather than a multi-threaded uh, fashion. My approach used to be to focus on building the product, building the business. And then when I would uh, see maybe our cash running low, I would decide, okay, now it's time to fundraise and switch into fundraising mode when, you're, when your runway is maybe- You toggle from, from building the business to fundraising. Correct. And then you're fundraising and uh, at some point, if you, if you don't get the, like the valuations you're seeing, then I would switch into M&A mode, right? So, so switch between these states. This was the absolute wrong approach. At Turing, I've operated in a more multi-threaded fashion. So the way I think about it is, uh, I wanna spend 85% of the time running the company, 10% of the time on investor relations, 5% of the time on cultivating the right strategic relationships um, for, that would be helpful for the business. And when you're having this ongoing dialogue with investors, there are two benefits. One benefit is you get really quick feedback from investors. I think of investors as another type of customer for the company. I mean, you have customers for your product and you have customers for the stock. And when you have the right kind of investor conversations with the right people who could be good partners in the future, it does a couple of things. The first is I get a good sense of what the market values in the business so that when we fundraise at a certain point in time, I know the parameters on which the business would be judged to raise the next round at a high valuation. And to do that, 
we did this approach of raising on safes continuously. So yep. Turing actually raised its first 15 million completely on safes. And we started off with a pretty low valuation cap for the safe. And for founders, pre-money safes are always a little better than, yep. than post-money safes. So we started off with, um, with a 10 million valuation cap safe. We went from 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 to 50 to 100, then 500, 750, a billion. And I, I feel like Turing was probably the first company to raise on a billion dollar safe. Yep. And then after- And now you've done more than that. Yes. And after a unicorn round, we've raised at a 4 billion valuation cap safe. And these safes, they, they give market signal also uh, to us. Like I like, I see it as a way of testing the market for what the company's value could be at any point in time. And they're also helpful for recruiting. Like usually when you hire execs, when you hire people, everyone's trying to figure out like what, what's the value of the company today. And it's helpful to say that your most recent safe was raised at a valuation cap of say 4 billion in Turing's case, rather than go back to what your round was one year ago, two years ago, obviously you've made a lot of progress. So it helps there to sort of, obviously a valuation cap is not a valuation, but, but it is. But it's a signal. It's a signal. It's a strong signal. It's a very strong signal. So I think the, your insight around sort of the value it creates in recruiting, I think, is a very important one. Uh, and I haven't heard others articulate it that way. Uh, and obviously, as you've had success and you've built this machine, you're able to do it at valuations that increase almost monotonically as the underlying business has scaled. Correct. So you, you've done this phenomenal job of you know, raising money on, sort of, on these safe notes as the company has grown you know, most recently now at $4 billion in valuation. And clearly you've built a system to do it because I've not seen anyone else do it. Would love for you to share a little bit of the secret behind your sort of approach and formula to doing this so that other founders can learn and possibly do the same. Yeah, uh, so I call this the safe staircase, like this notion of raising safe notes continuously at increasingly stepped up valuation caps. and. There are actually three parts to this issue. Uh, it actually starts first by thinking of investors differently from perhaps most founders typically do. I think of investors as thought partners for the business. It's important to have investors who can genuinely add value to the business by uh, asking the right questions, uh, sharing good ideas, helping the business at key points, right? It starts with being in that mindset, thinking of investors not just as sources of capital, but as being good thought partners. partners. And second, it starts with uh, having a high level of operational excellence in the company. So for example, at Turing, every month, we create a synopsis of how we are tracking relative to our goals for the quarter and relative to our goals for the year. We make it very crisp, what worked well, what didn't work well, what are our key priorities. And you set up these communication systems inside the company that you anyway need to build to operate. And we share this with our exec team, the broader leadership team, and across the company, right? When you've created this, let's call it a communication pack, the story of the company that month as it unfolded, it becomes super easy to share an investor update, right? Yep. You see me send investor updates every month, like for the last, since the company started. For the last 48 months, like monotonically in the third day of the next month, they show up. Correct. 
it used to take me a couple of hours to write those like in the early days when we were a seed stage company. Today, it takes me maybe like 30 minutes because systems are set up where the update largely writes itself, right? And what that does is it puts investors in the best possible position to be helpful, right? And I've benefited hugely from our investors making high quality exec team uh, intros, like for recruiting, high quality customer intros, intros to other investors. So we build a lot of trust through periodic, consistent, high quality updates. And these are zero cost to, to produce, right? Because we, we operate this way. So yeah. a lot of founders, I feel, get into this mode where they feel like the update has to be salesy. They have to like brag about something. We don't brag about anything. We just say, what worked well? What didn't work well? What are our priorities? And you actually like got me thinking about it back in the day. You, you would have this framework of problems, priorities, and progress, right? And have like a North Star metric. We just report on the same North Star metric. So once you have excellent operations, like operational excellence, which, which obviously stands on a bedrock of excellent yep. communication inside the company, it makes it super easy to keep investors informed and in the best possible position to be helpful. So you avoid the trap of going to investors only when you're running out of money or when you need. Uh, one investor told me, I hear from my companies only when they are about to go run out of money or about to get acquired. That's, that's such a... Terrible it's a terrible to place to be. Yes. It's so like, it sounds like the, the essence of this has been two things, and they're, they're sort of, they work in, in harmony. It's creating the operational discipline in the company to actually synthesize what's going on, even at the earliest days. Yes. When you don't have a large team, you don't have a lot of infrastructure, but having a very crisp point of view. Correct. If someone woke you up in the middle of the night, you'd say, these are the three things that went well, these are the three things that didn't having sort of the, the metrics to support each of those points. And the second is a mindset shift to thinking of investors as a partner and in some ways as a customer as against, you know, a source of capital alone. And lastly, it seems like you've also taken this, like there's a mindset shift in, that extends that says investor communication is a way for me to create value as against a tax for me. That's exactly right. Investor communication is a way to get value. And I think of working with investors as a form of uh, recruiting. Like the, I mean, we want investors who can give us an unfair edge to win, right? And fortunately, we've, we've been able to partner with some wonderful firms like Foundation, uh, Westbridge, um, and ma many, many other firms that, that have been just excellent thought partners for us on strategy. And if an investor is not able to add value beyond the capital, it, I think it makes sense to wonder if you really need to be, maybe you should search harder to find better investors who can truly add value. I want to transition a little bit to, you know, the last four years have really been about building a wonderful platform that is poised to change the way people recruit and manage remote work. And, yeah. and you now have this, you're, you're, you've been a unicorn for a while, you're raising money at a $4 billion cap, you're sort of reached the $100 million mark. You said earlier in our conversation that you're now starting to think about what's the next 10x? How do I go to a billion in revenues and how do I go to $10 billion in, in value? Talk about what are the things you're changing inside the company as you think about that transition? 
especially in the context of a changing economic environment? I think it comes with having the right strategy, having the right people, and having the right sort of um, set of risks in the business that you want to take out, like making sure that you're proactively anticipating all the things that can go wrong and methodically working through that. Right? Uh, one of the things, for example, that we're doing right now is um, with the exec team, I wrote down the strategy for the company for the next about three years. Okay. What is Turing as a company? What are we going to focus on? What are we not going to focus on? And making sure that the entire exec team is aligned on what company it is that we are building. Uh, my inspiration for it was the uh, was the Tesla, the secret plan for Tesla that Elon Musk wrote as a blog post, right? Very easy to understand. And writing it down in a, in a one pager was the start to get the, so that if you, my goal is if Ashu, if you or anyone on the board asks any of the execs, like what is Turing building? They give you the same answer, right? And before you write it down, there's a chance that they all give you a slightly different answer. In fact, most likely they're all going to give you a different answer. Correct. So in our last offsite, that was the first step, writing down the strategy for the next three to five years. My goal is to put the company in a position to go public over the next four or five years or so. And it starts with what's the strategy for the company? What do we have to prove out? What risks do we have to mitigate? And basically writing a list of all the things that could go wrong and making sure that we have the right mitigation path for that. The strategy is also set with a gold scaffold, like we are going for a certain growth rate year over year, right? So this is a strategy that has to serve that goal, cool. right? And then you go back into the nitty gritty of what is our quarterly roadmap gonna look like? What metrics do we need to hit quarter by quarter to execute that? And then you think about what are the gaps in the team that we have today to be able to execute that strategy? What are the gaps in product that we have to build to execute that? It becomes an exercise of basically building a pre-mortem for the next year all the things that could go wrong with the strategy and making sure that you're methodically de-risking the business. The hope is if you've de-risked everything, you're left with a big successful company that can go public eventually. At the end of that rainbow in a sense. Yes. Now, as you've done this, especially in the last six months, you've had to change modes from being a peacetime CEO to a wartime CEO, given the economic uncertainty. Uh, talk to me about how you personally have dealt with that and what it has meant for your team. Uh, I think it starts first with managing your own psychology. I feel like in my mind, I have like a, I mean, most CEOs kind of have to do this, have an optimistic view of the world and a pessimistic view of the world at the same time, right? Uh, so you're, you're positive, you, you have to be positive, like make, make sure that the company sort of uh, feels your energy, feels your, feels, feels your passion, while being very hard-nosed, pragmatic, realistic about what's not working well and what needs to be done to fix it, right? And I think as we head into, I would say, choppy weather, right? And who knows if we're going to go into a recession. Yeah, we don't know. It's we just, don't know. The, that's, that's the hardest part. Yes. In fact, if you knew for sure it's a recession, it would in some ways make it easier. Correct, correct. And I'm reminded of like the Nassim Taleb sort of view of, this is like black swan territory. And when you're in black swan territory, it's helpful to not try to predict, but instead make yourself resilient to whatever may happen. And that's the approach I take for Turing where... We don't know what the future can, I mean, maybe this lasts for six months, maybe it lasts for a couple of years, who knows? But I want to make sure Turing is resilient to a wide range of economic scenarios. So it starts with having a plan that can also handle, that can be stress tested against some weird weird cases, right? If there's some slowdown in demand, yep. if, if, some, if some customers go away because, because they go under, 
Can your business survive it? Making sure that your financial model can survive those stress tests. In terms of the way you operate, I've also increased my frequency of communication with the entire company. We used to have all hands every other week. Now we have all hands every week. And again, it's the same cadence with the company. What worked well in the last week? What didn't work well? Here are the key priorities. Here is the one metric I want everyone in the company to know about. We have to make sure that we are- So literally to... every week, I mean, you have close to a thousand employees, give or take. Everyone gets to see uh, what's top of mind for you. Correct. That's great. I think that's a great lesson for other founders. That you're doing this at this scale, I think it's very impressive. But keep going. Yes. So in moments of uncertainty, I think it's good to stay close to the company. It's both reassuring for everybody, particularly in a very in a distributed context, and ensuring optimal allocation of energy in the right areas. I think when you get bigger, like you, you often find that you, it's important to repeat priorities across the company, like message sent often is not message received. So it's good to uh, reinforce priorities, reinforce strategy, reinforce what needs attention. And that really helps. From an operating perspective, like we are just very conservative in terms of uh, just making sure that um, in very worst case scenarios, the company is still going to be in a great spot. Uh, we've been fortunate that Turing's in a very big market. At the end of the day, the way the world moves forward is by building technology and everybody needs software engineers. So we've been fortunate. Um, but it's definitely been a shift. I mean, the, the blitzscaling view was in moments of uncertainty, prioritizing speed over efficiency. Now in the efficient scaling era, it's really thinking about efficiency metrics like you know things like contribution margin, burn multiples, payback periods, um, like dialing down sort of your less effective marketing channels and dialing up your more effective marketing channels. So let me push this a little bit. So as you said, you know, you've gone from, and I'm grossly oversimplifying this, growth at all costs to capital efficient growth, yep. as have many high growth companies across the valley. Yeah. You hired a bunch of leaders in your executive team that have been operating under growth at all costs. Yep. And you probably spent weeks and months thinking about this, but one fine day, the organization has to go from growth at all costs to capital efficient growth. How did the organization react? And how did you deal with that reaction? Yeah, so we were ahead of this in some ways. Our chief of staff team and I had started thinking about this, I would say in early Q2, when there were some sort of early signals. And it was a process of first aligning the exec team, then the leadership team, and then the entire company. And there was a delicate balance like where we wanted to, th there were some leaders who felt like, okay, there's definitely an element of fear particularly when you look at everything that's going on, you're seeing companies doing layoffs, companies doing hiring freezes, companies doing pauses. So you kind of have to be very careful in how you communicate uh, news like this, like the shift from blitz scaling to efficient scaling. We had to communicate the story very clearly in a data-driven way to all the leaders as to why we have to do this and, and make the shift and why, it, why it's important. I was pleasantly surprised by how quickly everybody understood that the shift was warranted. It helps when there is continuous confirmation bias from, from the entire world. You read yes. the news, you go on Twitter, you kind of see it. And in, in some ways, it must have actually been a relief because people are wondering what you're going to do. Correct. 
and at least now they know what you're going to do. It's it, it it's probably for some people it was, oh my God, it could have been a lot worse. Correct. At least now I know what what, what Jonathan's planning to do as against waiting with bated breath. Correct. That is exactly right, Ashu. I think 98% of the reaction was, this makes a lot of sense. Like I was wondering how we were going to adapt. Thank you for clarifying how this 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 would this would happen. This makes a lot of sense. I think in we did dial down some of our less efficient marketing channels. Like obviously some of the leaders who are working on those channels, I have to spend more time with them to reassure them that okay, those those investments are going to continue to be made. Uh, but but uh, but it sounds in a large part sort of just the articulating what you're doing and why you're doing and how it will allow you to be a resilient company irrespective of the you know multitude of possible economic scenarios actually was reassuring for the leadership team and reassuring for folks you know who are in the boat that's right and one of the most important things uh, we did is narrow our focus to three core areas for the company uh, three core strategic areas and reducing our focus on certain other products that were perhaps not creating as much business value. For me, the biggest takeaway when we switched from blitz scaling to efficient scaling was, maybe I should have done this sooner. It just unlocked more speed and more growth for us. And I'm ashamed to say that I should have probably done this sooner. I mean, when a company grows so fast, there is inefficiency in parts of the organization. And this broader economic climate just forced me to just do an x-ray of the entire org and to just do a detailed deep dive on what metric is this team contributing to? What metric is this team contributing to? And we definitely noticed some gaps where good people, good teams, but, but it not wasn't focused on the right things. Not, not focused focus on the right things. things. I'm going to switch topics a little bit, you know, to talk about remote work, which is topical more broadly in the context of COVID, but is also very topical in the context of a wage inflationary environment. I mean, one of the things I sort of have said multiple times now to almost every CEO I meet is in an era where wage inflation in the US will be five to 7% a year for the next three years, we're talking about 15 to 25% wage inflation. For companies to survive and continue to be healthy, my thesis is that somewhere between 25 and 50% of their employee base will have to be in lower cost locations. And in my mind, it's all employees, not just engineering employees. You've been pioneering that, not just in your engineering team, but engineering teams for hundreds of companies today, and in the way you run your business beyond engineering. So can you share a little bit about what are your lessons learned in how to do this and how to do it well, and some of the mistakes that you've made along the way? Yeah. So. Uh... I think there's a massive shift in the way we build tech companies. I think the old way of building a tech company was to have this giant campus in Mountain View or, or Palo Alto and have everyone work from that office. I think a better way to build tech companies, unicorns in the future, is to hire your senior leadership in places like Silicon Valley, places like New York, places like that. So Silicon Valley still has an edge in talent density for exec level talent. Yep. Who knows for how long, but today for sure it does. So I see a future where the exec team and perhaps the layer below the exec team, like key leadership could be concentrated in, in, in Silicon Valley. But I think for the rest of the team, 
it makes a lot of sense to be distributed other parts of the US, other parts of the world. Uh, at Turing, the revelation for me was, uh, I always knew engineering teams could be distributed. The revelation for me was, could sales teams be distributed? Right? When we started, I would hear this refrain from leaders that, you know, it's good to keep the sales team in one building, they give each other positive energy and you kind of want, want that. Silicon Valley is hard, expensive to scale a sales team. Maybe you should look at Austin or some of these. I've, I've heard advice like that. Yep. But our uh, head of GTM, head of revenue, Prakash, like he, he kind of did this um, amazing thing of building a distributed sales team. It's distributed across the US, across LATAM, across, across uh, Europe, a few other places. And it works. It works as long as you do periodic in-person huddles. So it's good to have like an uh, in-person offsite at least once a quarter to bring specific functions yep. together. And the important thing is to do these offsites well, right? It, it shouldn't be like, okay, whoever is in Brazil, come meet. Like that, that's, not, that, that's not it. But it's like being thoughtful about bringing product and data science together uh, for a couple of days in one location, bringing sales together in one location. I absolutely think in the future, we'll see perhaps maybe even 80% of a company's headcounts being outside of Silicon Valley with maybe 20% staying in places like Silicon Valley, uh, New York, uh, et cetera. So you've done this across engineering, product, data science. It sounds like Prakash has done this across sales. What about other functions, marketing, operations? Have you had success, equal success there as well? Yes, so Turing is 100% distributed. So we are, we are completely distributed. We've had success everywhere. Uh, the one place where I would say it's important to have some level of co-location uh, is probably the exec team. I think with the exec team, it's important to have like really low friction to meet and to talk. And we've created good systems where we get together to meet in person at a periodic cadence. People sometimes fall into this extremes. Like there is one camp that says no offices, fully remote, fully distributed. And then there is the office-based camp that says, it's great. I mean, you need the water cooler conversations. You need the serendipity. You yep. need the. You need that. Uh, I think the the answer is actually something more pragmatic, which is the default is work from anywhere, but you should meet frequently, meet as needed, right? And the company should create good structures to bring people together in in periodic groups, bring people together on a very in the right case. in the right structure. Have you found that having people? in some overlapping time zone matters, or it's literally, you could have people in, in, you know, in the same team working in time zones that have no, very little overlap? I think it varies by function. For example, for our engineering, there are certain teams that have a four hour time zone overlap. For something like sales, we, given a lot of our customers are in the US, uh, we want to have perfect overlap with PST, with uh, EST. So it's team specific. Got it. Uh, and the company just needs to have a good culture of communication. Uh, and again, it comes to operational excellence in that sense where um, you there is a company dashboard in terms of key metrics that everybody has access to. Um, so, so you minimize the need for these meetings to transfer information and you... You create structure and process. It sounds like in some sense what I'm hearing you say is, look, there's three big lessons learned here in, in remote work. One is it is possible to actually go almost 80% remote as long as you have 
frequent in-person interaction in the form of off-sites and ways for people to get together. Two, you have to be thoughtful and explicit about your strategy by function because it may vary a little bit by function. You can do it across the board, but be explicit about what you're doing for every function. And third, it sort of raises the bar dramatically on communication and operational excellence. Like you really do have, you can't be haphazard about it or ad hoc. Everything has to be structured and programmed in uh, to make it work. That's exactly right, Ashu. It, you have to communicate more frequently and you have to communicate in written form. Um, more often. More yeah. often. Yeah. More often and in, uh, in, in, in writing. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, this has been a fun conversation and such a great way to reflect on the journey we've both had together over the last four years. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Ashu. It's been great to partner and excited for the future ahead. Yeah. Excited for the next decade. Yeah. Thank you. That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. B2B a CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name including Netflix, Lending Club, Tube Mogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line.